0: Welcome to The Right Idea, where we discuss the policy, people, and politics that animate Texas. Brian is not with us today. He is on assignment covering Spice World, which as we know is not the tech convention, but actually the Spice Girls reunion tour. Instead, I'm joined by Andrew Brown. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Derek. So, got to gotta ask, since obviously Brian, uh, he's not actually at uh, Spice World or the Reunion Tour, to my knowledge, to my knowledge. But let me ask you, because we usually like to start off with something a little lighter before we get into these heady topics. So, let me ask you, who is your favorite Spice Girl and why? I was a ginger spice guy. Hmm.
1: Just, you know, a little bit out of the ordinary, kind of. Didn't freak me out like Scary did.
0: You I mean, know. that's kind of on brand for her, though. Right. Yeah. So here's an interesting thing as a ginger spice guy. You know she's currently married to the team principal of F1's racing Red Bull team, right? And so would that make you like a Max Verstappen fan, or are you kind of stay, staying out of that particular melee? I'm staying out of
1: that one. I mean, is the is the other one still married to David Beckham?
0: Yes, correct. And is he still able to walk? Oh, yeah. Actually, no, because remember, uh, uh, he is the principal owner of uh, Miami, Miami FC. Yeah. Yeah, they're right, he, Inter-Miami, they are correct. Um, who just signed uh, Messi, and that's, I, I don't know, I've caught a couple of their games. I think this Messi kid might have a future in the game.
1: You know, I didn't i didn't really know of him. I mean, I <laughs> heard buzz, like there was this young Argentinian kid yeah. that was like making waves. I but saying, I mean, he might have a future.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny we call him a kid, but he's, you know, like our Older age. Older than and, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Uh, yeah, a long, illustrious career. But obviously, Andrew, we appreciate you. Uh, coming in visiting Uh, a lot of stuff to talk about specifically in your particular lane but before we do since we haven't had you on this particular show before uh, let's get uh, some introductions out of the way so let's start off with basically how you ended up at tppf so andrew life before tppf go
1: Yeah, so grew up in Texas. I went to Baylor for undergrad and Southern Methodist University for law school. Um, And it was during my time in law school that I really got keyed into my subject matter area, which is the child welfare system. You know, our law school had a child advocacy clinic. I had some family connections with adoption that was going on at the time. And it just really felt like that was the lane that I wanted to be in uh, for my legal career. Uh, so after law school, moved up to the Washington D.C. area and went in house for an adoption and foster care agency there. So mm. I was living in D.C. but not working in politics, which is kind of a rare mm. thing to happen in that town. So where were you a barista? Where was I? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, not that Starbucks, man. They burn. They burn their beans. More of a pret guy. More. I'm much more of a pret. Understood. Sometimes peace. Understood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But while I was there, I got more and more involved in the policy side of things um, and then had an opportunity to go work for another organization very similar to TPPF to start up a child welfare policy shop, which not sure if... Uh, The listeners are aware, but not a lot of conservatives in child welfare. It's very much a field where people like to use their pronouns. Um, And so having a conservative voice in child welfare policy was something that I was really excited about, I thought was really important for us as a movement. Um, And it was through that work that I got connected with TPPF and my predecessor here, uh, who is doing the same thing that I was doing at the time, building a conservative voice within the child welfare system. Um, And so after he took another opportunity, he called me up, and uh, I was able to come over and join the TPPF team. Um, And then as I've been here since 2018, you know, you let people know that you're interested in various things, and uh, you start getting more and more responsibilities, and that's how I came to be assistant to the regional manager.
0: (laughs) Nice. If I can, if I can, yes, end your point and don't let's let's not let the office reference go on gun, <laughs> un- go unacknowledged. But if I can acknowledge your po- other point, the one you said about building a conservative voice for, uh, you know, child welfare. It bears mentioning that, you know, you when you were at the previous organization or currently aren't the only right of center voice there. The problem is, and at least in my experience, what I've observed is that there's other voices in this space mm-hmm. on quote unquote, our side of the aisle, tend to draw from the worst side from the other side of the aisle. And when I say that, I mean, in terms of remedies and solutions. Right. That it basically is what can we do to ensure that we snatch more babies? Right. And that does not seem like a very productive place to start Um, any discussion obviously with child welfare we all understand these are tough circumstances these are situations where you know families might be struggling and individuals and families might be suffering with addiction Mm -hmm. they might have other sort of of criminality but it's almost like the hair trigger response is to grab the kid and then pull them into the state right that does that seems a little misguided can you kind of clarify that particular lens through which we view child welfare
1: yeah and i think that's an excellent point um one of the things that has driven me crazy over the years as a conservative in this space is talking to other conservative folks who maybe aren't steeped in the issue. And it's that gut reaction. And I completely understand that gut reaction. Mm. If you hear about child abuse, neglect, those types of things, you know what you see in the news media is the most horrific stories possible. Right. Um, and yeah, absolutely. Get in there, protect those kids. Uh, but what when you actually get into the field itself, you realize things are the lot things more that make the headlines are the vast minority mm-hmm. of these cases, right? Most of these kids are coming from poor families, families that are trying to do their best under hard circumstances and need support from their local communities rather than government intervention. Mm-hmm. And when you get into that level of the system and you hear people saying, well, the biggest problem is we just need to get these kids adopted into better families. Mm-hmm. As a conservative, it drives me nuts because I'm like, we're for small government except for this. Mm. And we want more government intervention in what is probably one of the most horrific things that government can do to a citizen. And by that, I mean permanently separate you from your own child and take just take that legal relationship completely away. And so our approach on this is we want to get to these root causes. We want government intervention to be a true last resort. Mm. We want the government to step in legitimately when a child has been abused, when they're in imminent danger of harm. That's where the system should be operating. Everything else needs to be support through local community organizations um, and rebuilding that civil society that we really have been losing in Mm -hmm. this country. And I think the the current state of the child welfare system is exhibit A of why we need to rebuild civil society in this country.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, it's a point we bring up frequently, especially when we talk about, you know, civics education. You know, it's like we can add another module to the teaks. We can do X, we can do Y in the policy space. But, you know, when are we uh, done spitting into the wind uh, because of all these countervailing cultural forces? But strong families, as you remark, are one of the uh, bulwarks, one of the buttresses Mm -hmm. against kind of the societal decay, as you and I would uh, deem it.
1: Right. And I would say government can do very little. To build strong
0: families, mm. they can do a lot to weaken families. Yeah, we should pass a law that's just families need to be strong. Just, so to pass a law, <laughs> there ought to be a law. Um, but so, so, so you came to TPPF, obviously, love to have you here. Um, but we, uh, after you got here in 18, I think it was 2020, we really segued into kind of the... Uh, the campaign model, right? Where you had previously uh, been the director of the uh, Center for Families and Children, our, our child welfare center, back when we were kind of in that that siloed capacity. Mm-hmm. You've really kind of broadened to include everything else in that child welfare space, and we'll talk a little bit about SB fourteen here uh, shortly. But I really want to kind of what is your animating principle up at the building? Because look, you're you're talking to lawmakers. Some may have some experience with child uh, welfare, whether them, them they themselves are foster parents uh, or no foster parents that they've uh, interacted with, have constituents that talk to them about it. But the thing is, and look, I'm, I'm the vice president of policy at a thing tank that does a lot of child welfare. Even I don't know of the vast majority of what you know in this area. So how do you educate the folks up at the building who this would be a secondary or tertiary right. area of interest?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one of the biggest challenges that we have, because this is a very niche subject matter area. It's a hard subject matter area to be in.
0: You're dealing with... Your job is safe, if you feel like that's what you're buttressing right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But Mm
1: -hmm. it's understandable that not a lot of members want to become an expert in this, because you're having to look at really terrible, heartbreaking cases. Yeah. um, Constantly, every single day. Um, And so one of our Big goals is just that education component. You know, we do a Child Welfare 101 briefing for staff at the beginning of session, and it's that 30,000-foot level. This is going to come up at some point, and here's the basics that you need to know to be able to advise your boss. Mm-hmm. And we, the way we do that is it's a very general, you know, I will say, I'm just going to give you the facts, and when I editorialize and give you my opinion, I'm going to make sure you know that this is my opinion of the system, not the way the system itself is structured to work Mm. legally Um, and I think that's really important that you have those two perspectives Um, now where we come in is here's how the system is currently working here's the data that shows this is not working well we really bolster that data with stories Mm. there's nothing more powerful in that building than impacted families coming in and telling their stories of how the system has actually affected their day-to-day lives. Because other than that, they're just a number, and your gut instinct is to err on the side of caution Mm -hmm. in this field. And even if it seems like there might be a problem through the data, until you actually see the real-world impact of that problem, Mm -hmm. it's going to be a little bit harder to act and to make that change. And so that's one of the bridges that we try to um one of the connections we try to make for the members up there is the data and the stories
0: well and that that i mean that's a perfect encapsulation of what it means to approach something or a conservative mindset. You know, we don't talk about, oh, well, you know, there are no cases in which removal is necessary or, you know, almost all cases removal are necessary. It's all about trade offs, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, we, f- f- we would not be a, a center right organization if we did not uh, discuss trade offs specifically in the policy space. So, again, like you mentioned earlier, you got caught doing your job well. Um, <laughs> so we punished you by giving you another one uh and, and, so, and throw I come, me into that briar patch yeah, exactly exactly um but yeah so you are the associate vice president of policy uh a role that you've held for about how long now a little over a year i think coming up on two i was i was about to say we were so we were so young and innocent back you know a year ago <laughs> so you know a year ago that was actually you know three or four years ago it seems um i but, had hair back then yeah as long as there's nobody doing any sort of uh, internet sleuthing yes i can concur yeah as long as there's no follow-up <laughs> questions um but we've moved you into this this new role, one in which you I mean, the foundation has benefited greatly from your your service in that role uh, as the associate vice president of policy, because you are, you know, when it comes to the personnel management side, kind of the, you know, really looking at some of the sporting documentation of some of this legislation, you know, you've just been absolutely killing it. We definitely appreciate it. How, what is your role entail here, you know, keep it Mm 30,000 foot, you know, we don't need to talk about, well, on, you know, Thursday, I have to fill out the weekly report and, you know, stuff like that. But 30,000 foot, what does your new role uh, entail? And how does that kind of, uh, I would say, support what you're doing with your continued role with Right for Families?
1: Yeah, well. As the associate vice president of policy, you know one of my duties is to ensure that your lunch is well prepared every day. Thank you. That your shirts are properly starched. It's taken me a long time, but I feel like I've gotten the right amount of starch. Yeah, in I, mean, I, f-
0: I feel like I got to like apologize. You know, when I threw coffee in your face and said I don't have time for you, you know, <laughs> I apo- that was on me. I it's about, all right. I, I de- may have overreacted. I deserved it. Yeah.
1: I came in without knocking. That it's is my fault.
0: That is true. <laughs> that is true. Uh,
1: but in all seriousness. <laughs> um, a lot of my role is to advise and support all of the experts that we have here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation to execute on their visions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really a cool thing to be at this organization because we have the smartest people in the state in their fields working here, and in my role as associate vice president of policy, I get to help them take their big ideas and turn them into actionable policy solutions and help them sell those ideas at the mm-hmm. legislature. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the big things that came out of the last legislative session that we're working on right now is really understanding how the rules of the House and the Senate actually can impact um, legislation. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all known for a long time that the parliamentarians do have a certain amount of power. Mm-hmm. They've got quite a bit of power as it turns out, um, with several bills that went down this last session on procedural grounds. Um, Now, for those who may not know, House parliamentarians and Senate parliamentarians, and we focus on the House because the Senate just doesn't have rules. They have rules, but they kind of throw them out the window as
0: convenient. No, I wouldn't say that. You know, it's a matter of course, is that they suspend the rules at the beginning of every day. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I do have to mention that that was something that uh, that Secretary Nelson said to me once. He goes, you know, Derek, we have plenty of rules in the Senate, some of which are we very, very much cherish. And then we suspend them. (laughs) I I had a chuckle at that, which is very accurate. (laughs) Um,
1: But essentially, what that parliamentarian does is they make sure that the House and the Senate run by agreed upon rules Mm -hmm. that the members vote on at the beginning of every session. Um, And those rules um, really dictate even the way a bill is structured. much information can be in a bill, the way that it's communicated. You know, we want to make sure that there's a level playing field for all of the members and all of the pieces of legislation uh, that come through the chambers from a rules standpoint. The politics is a different story. Um, but what that means is bills can be killed if they don't follow these very minute Sometimes arcane procedural rules Mm -hmm. if there's like a little detail missing that bill can die just because of a procedural defect rather than anything having to do with the merits of the bill and we saw that happen several times during the last session and it made us realize you know we really need to build up. Our understanding of that process, our understanding of those rules, to be able to more successfully navigate uh, through the legislature during a session. Um, So that's one thing that I'm working on right now, Mm. is building out that capability within TPPF. Um, You know, you and I have both enrolled in parliamentarian training.
0: Um, (laughs) We're badgers now.
1: I feel we are badgers. University of Wisconsin, baby. Uh, Oh that felt bad that felt really bad imagine
0: being a big 10 fan man oh it's worse (laughs) for you it's what much worse for you
1: um but i i say all of that to make this point that doing this job well and making sure that we are serving the people of texas well you know requires constant training constant education and a constant awareness of where do our most effective capabilities lie? Mm-hmm. And I think the campaign model that we've set up has really enabled us to do that mm-hmm. here at the foundation uh, because we're able to draw on you know, the strengths of each member of this team and deploy those in the right direction to be as effective as we, we possibly can.
0: If I may, yes, and that point, because it's a fantastic point, is that not only do you take be- greatest advantage of the people that are on your team, people are... Forced to have a diverse team at the table, whether mm-hmm. it's folks from engagement, comms, whatever, you know, whether it's Brian in the meeting or one of his team members, you know, it's somebody that knows more about comms than you or me or any other of the pol- people on the oh, policy we- side, which we, of course, we say, you know, uh, glowingly. Um but, yeah, so I, I definitely reinforce that point. That is a fantastic model. Now, let's actually talk about one of the bills that did, uh, I would say, end up uh, running afoul or at least being adjudged to have run afoul uh, of certain uh, parliamentary procedures, uh, SB 14, uh, the uh, ban on the so-called gender-affirming care or child mutilation, however you wish to uh, term it, uh, is, is law now. It's been law for about a week. It is. Um, when it to affect on September 1st. Yeah, along many other things, including the fully operational Death Star. Um, but yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the subject matter area, yeah. our involvement going forward, because, I mean, it, this has been painted as a, you know, as a social issue, right. which I think kind of takes it out of the actual milieu that it was in, which was that child welfare space, if we remember. We'll we'll get to that. So before we dive in on that, let me just get a a level set on what was the national policy discussion in Texas uh, and nationally prior to 2023? I mean, this
1: issue really tipped into the national consciousness within the last one to two years, maybe. Um, It was something that was bubbling under the surface for a number of years, um, but it really didn't get to the point of everybody fully understanding what was actually going on. Mm -hmm. You know, these pediatric gender clinics have not been around all that long in the United States. I think the first one opened in Boston in, like, 2007. Um, So it's a relatively recent phenomenon of medically transitioning children who are struggling with a mental health disorder known as gender dysphoria, where they feel that they are a sex other than their biological sex, Mm. and that causes them very intense anxiety, depression, and distress. It's a Mm. diagnosable mental health condition. Now, what's been interesting with the rise of social media is you're actually seeing more and more children having gender confusion. But not full gender dysphoria, and a lot of that uh, we theorize is based on the dramatic increase in social media use and the communities that have popped up on the internet and within you know the various social media websites, um, as well as some of you know the cyberbullying and just all of the things that kids are having to deal with these days. I mean, I kind of grew up in that weird generation that we were we started analog like i remember using the card catalog mm-hmm. at the library at school and then all of a sudden computers popped to be up. fair you also
0: went to baylor though
1: that is true mm-hmm. that is true we actually went horse and buggies <laughs> and uh the females were not allowed to wear dresses that did not cover their arms neck and down to
0: their ankles <laughs> this was in 2000 uh,
1: yeah oh
0: absolutely there was a fun
1: I, when did i get to baylor i got to baylor in like 2003 three was mm-hmm. my freshman year mm-hmm. and they had just this is a true story they had just permitted dancing like less than a decade prior
0: wow on campus i never knew waco was uh, kind of that footloose place oh it was
1: yeah. I, I lived in the footloose town <laughs> nice. and then chip and jojo came and everything shiplapped <laughs> um how did we get onto that
0: topic uh, i don't know now we just got to go home and uh, yeah. watch uh so now watch back, footloose <laughs> now back to
1: child sex trait modification yes um this issue you know people started understanding more and more what kids were going through um on the internet i brought up the card catalog and i mm. you know was saying you know i wouldn't want to be a kid in these days because what they're exposed to the way that bullying occurs is just so dark and nefarious mm. yeah. you know When I was a kid, bullying was you got beat up on the playground. A teacher saw it. Um, You know, it was very much out in the open. Um,
0: But it ended when the school day ended. But it
1: ended when the school day ended. And there were, you know, outlets and protections. Mm. Now it's essentially psychological torture um, that goes on. And, yeah, I mean, it's no wonder that many of these kids are just looking for acceptance anywhere they possibly can and are so vulnerable to being sucked into this ideology that says if you physically alter your appearance you will be happy finally mm-hmm. um, and what we're learning very very quickly is that's not the case um, the other piece we realize or what we have come to learn in the last several years is there are doctors and pharmaceutical companies who are making a lot mm-hmm. of money exploiting these mental health mm. disorders um and for us that was the animating principle behind senate bill 14 was who's the real villain here mm. that we need to be fighting and it was very very clear that the true villain are these radical activists and these radical doctors and i'm mm. going to use that term loosely um because they're uh, Do-
0: dr moreau is a doctor
1: dr moreau uh, dr mengala also sure. a doctor. Sure. Um, but they're violating that first duty, which mm-hmm. is to do no harm. Mm-hmm. And they are actively harming these children
0: and so based that's the... solely
1: on an ideology.
0: And that's where the tie in with the child welfare. happens. Exactly.
1: Um, and so once the general public became aware mm-hmm. of these medical experiments that are being conducted on children, you know, there was understandably and rightfully an outrage mm-hmm. and, you know, a call for these kids to be protected. And what do you do when you need to protect a kid? You call CPS. And so that was the visceral gut reaction is this is child abuse. This is child abuse. This is child abuse, which yes. But, I mean very understandable. Right. But when you but, say that, you have to understand that that term has legal ramifications mm-hmm. both for that child and for their family. Yeah. And you have to figure out is do is going that far is using that nuclear option of pulling a child away from their family, putting them into the foster care system that we know already has its own harms and trauma that it delivers mm-hmm. on children. Is that the right way and the best way to protect these kids who we know are already struggling mm.
0: with a very significant mental health disorder? And and to put just a, an underline under that, what you're saying is you're basically saying that, look, we can you know put. put Gender dysphoria, gender confusion aside, right? You know, we have a kid who has very acute anxiety, uh, maybe perhaps some depression, you know, the, the things that are, you know, major red flags for for youth mental health. And the solution then to, to some folks is then to thrust these individuals into a system that almost unequivocally exacerbates right. those particular negative functions right and, I, and that's not a product
1: of an intent I don't know no, the, yeah. the intention is to protect and again it goes back to what we were talking about earlier is yeah. when you understand a system from a 30,000 foot level you don't understand what goes on inside that system mm-hmm. um, and you're not expected to and that's you know where folks like me come in who have been doing this for their entire career is hey FYI Here's all of the horrible things
0: that's going to happen to this kid when you put them into this system. And, and so I, it, it's just, it's just a struggle to talk about because you definitely have, you know, these folks who I would say there's definitely a lot of energy, a lot of, uh, you know, fervor behind it because they see what's being done to kids in the name of this ideology You know, this ideology that has been around for five minutes. And, you know, this is irreversible. This is irreversible across the board, because at the very least, even if you're uh, engaging in the most, the lightest treatment possible, and I'm not even talking, I'm talking the lightest uh, treatment pursuant to SB 14. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about therapy or anything like that, which therapy can go either way. It can kind of exacerbate the delusion or it can work uh, towards, uh, towards normalcy. But essentially, any of the interventions countenanced by SB 14 are irreversible. And essentially, a child is now being pushed down this, you know, without any consent of their own. Now, look, they turn 18 and, you know, their body, they can do whatever they want to. it. Right. Uh, you know, piercings, tattoos, the whole nine yards. And that would include, you know, double mastectomies for, for um, conforming reasons. Mm-hmm. I understand the 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 animating principle behind mm-hmm. it. My question to you is, what do you think is the best way of. Explaining to these people who are well-meaning that the child welfare system is a not equipped for this, yeah. to say to say the least, and b an inappropriate venue even if it were. Right. So I would st- I
1: went about that in two ways. One was I got to know kids who had transitioned and then detransitioned, and heard from them. And uh, having stories. watched the hearing, I hear those
0: kids don't even exist
1: i can tell you they very much (laughs) exist and they're some of the bravest kids i've ever met in my life Um, you you
0: wouldn't know it by what some of the folks on the left said you wouldn't Yeah. um
1: but what we're doing is we're coming after a sacred cow for the left um it's one of the ways that they're trying to further divide children from their families so that they can indoctrinate these children and make them good little comrades um But it was talking to those detransitioners as well as talking to the parents of children who have struggled with gender dysphoria, regardless of whether or not their child transitioned or not. Um, And you realize that this, the munchy mom, the mom who sees her transgender child as the accessory that gives her credibility in Austin or L.A. cocktail parties Mm. is, again, the vast minority Mm. of the parents of these kids.
0: It's just a parent wanting their child to stop hurting. Correct.
1: And... You know, this child is struggling with a mental health disorder and the parent wants to help. So they take the child to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist from the very first appointment without ever spending more than an hour with the kid says, oh, yes, your child is transgender. And the best thing that you can do is affirm them and take them to this other doctor who will give them these medications. And oh, by the way, if you don't do this, your child will kill themselves. What parent is not going to at least be tempted to follow that advice. You know, if you don't have um, a strong moral or ethical foundation or even a spiritual foundation, it's very, very easy to be persuaded by somebody who you believe to be an expert and Mm -hmm. believe to be doing the having your child's best interest at heart Mm -hmm. is telling you you need to take this radical step or your child is going to die. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's where we really came down to this idea of who's the real villain here and the real villain is the person who's emotionally manipulating a family and emotionally manipulating a child into getting experimental irreversible medical procedures performed on them
0: and you know obviously the the work that you've done in that space has been if if i might if i might say has been one that's very uh people-centric and compassion oriented Mm -hmm. which i think that Uh, There's a lot of folk who do engage in uh, discussion around any policy area that tend to forget that even if we have this fundamental disagreement that we all have an intrinsic humanity that we need to. To respect now should that humanity be be permitted to you know experiment on children absolutely not right. but you know that's what that's what the political process is for of course you know the you know the 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 activists say oh well we're going to leave the state of Texas uh, of course I'm very uh, dubious of that specifically because if people uh, actually made good on such threats Canada would be twice the population of the U S after <laughs> the Bush presidency for all the people that said that um, but that being said is we're now starting to see that uh, also with Are in higher education Mm -hmm. you know i think there was a study out a day or two ago that says about two thirds of respondents from texas uh basically would tell colleagues not to take positions here specifically because of SB uh 17 and 18 the anti-dei bill and the anti the anti-tenure the one that the five-year tenure review uh bill uh and essentially you know they're saying oh well we're not uh we don't want to uh, have other colleagues come here because of the political because of the the political state of higher education which of course coming from the conservative side and who came from higher education I, I just can't help but laugh at but what we're seeing is essentially you know now that the uh the vampires are out in the sunlight is that, you know, if they can't have DEI or, you know, an absolute ironclad uh, job for life guarantee policy that they just don't want to do the job. And for if you look at the, uh, you know, the political uh, affiliations of college faculty, you know, we're talking almost, you know, depending on which measure you use anything from 95 to 99 percent right. Democrat, which could be liberal, progressive or any shade in between. Mm-hmm.
1: They're clearly very yeah. oppressed in their institutions,
0: and and exactly the ones that they marched through. Um, but <laughs> but that being said, is. The reforms that were put in place specifically in 2023 seem to be bearing fruit. And look, I'm not saying that wanting a person, even one who I disagree with vehemently and have in the academic context and in the professional context, you know, wanting to leave the state is is per se a good thing, but it shows a change in the incentive structure for these individuals within higher education. Of course, the survey also has, oh, where where are you looking at uh, going? California, New York, and then like distant third Colorado, uh, which of Course, I'm like, if that probably belies a little bit more about the individual's priors than does uh, the right. fact that they're like, oh, their arms are folded. I hate Texas so much, uh, you know, in that particular uh, vein. So, let me ask you When well, I'm
1: looking at the population <laughs> trends between Texas and those states, and it would seem that not many people are taking their colleagues' advice about not moving to yeah. Texas.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, as a, as a PhD outside of academia, I don't, <laughs> yeah, I look at that and go, huh. So but uh, one thing to say, one thing to say, though, is this also brings to light a recent Gallup poll as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Gallup poll in and of itself found that the faith in higher education in the traditional four year college experience is absolutely plummeting. You know, we have seen, you know, in 2015, 57 percent had um, a lot of confidence in mm-hmm. higher education in 2018, that's down to uh, 48%. Now we're at 36. And this is across every subgroup. Now, granted, conservatives um, are, tend to be uh, further on down that track, as, as that poll shows. But we're seeing this entire shift away from higher education. and It's, it's very understandable. You know, the actual premium that a college degree uh, has, has completely disappeared from uh, black college graduates born right. 1980 or later. Right. So... So another let me say that again. If you were born, if you were black and born 1980 or later, the value of a college degree, the premium over making what you would make um, if you did a trade school or any other Mm -hmm. um, or any other pursuit on average is gone. Right. It is completely gone and it disappears faster than it does for for white folks. So I completely understand this particular trend, yet it almost seems like anytime you even just, you know, try to pull a diseased leaf off the rotten tree, you know, the tree has, you know, convulses, spasms and says two thirds of it want to leave the state. Right. And so my question to you, back when you were at Baylor and looking through your card catalogs, and <laughs> we're not going to have to talk about what Baylor did this last weekend in football. Oh, my But uh, when Painful. you were... So, but you have a but you have that private school, um, that private school. And I would and I would argue on the grand spectrum, conservative private school for the most uh, part yeah. um, experience. How was it there? And do you see these trends specifically uh, the trend of the leftward march of the institutions happening even there? And what do we do about it?
1: Yeah, you definitely saw it. Um, not to the extent that you see it at places um, like the University of Texas, for example. Gasp. Um, and partially that was because you had a very clear Baptist foundation, um, that the board of trustees really did, I thought, a good job of adhering to. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't see a lot of drift during my time at Baylor. I haven't seen a lot of drift since. Now, granted, I don't watch things as closely, Mm -hmm. um, as I used to, but you still really did have a strong influence of more progressive ideologies into campus. One of the things though, that I appreciated, and this could be a generational thing i don't know maybe i'm getting to that age now where it's like back in my day
0: Uh, Um, tell us about kids these days yeah
1: but both at baylor and uh, smu law um there was an encouragement of expressing dissenting opinions Mm -hmm. um there was an encouragement to explore all sides of an issue i think um law school was more by virtue of the fact that as a lawyer you know you might have to represent somebody that you disagree with Mm -hmm. and you need to be prepared um, to do that. I think at Baylor it was more from a philosophical standpoint from the history of that school and the Mm -hmm. thoughts uh, and philosophies that animated that school. Um, I think that is an important factor in the loss of confidence in these institutions via Mm -hmm. education. But I think what's more important is what you pointed out um, is that the value of the degree is going down. I think it's you know, the old James Carville line of it's the economy, stupid, (laughs) right? People are looking at their higher education degrees. And, you know, we were always told the path to a good job, the path to prosperity in America is a college education. Mm. You get that college education, you are set for life. You're going to have the American dream, the house, the white picket fence, the beautiful wife, the two kids, you know, the nice car in the driveway, Mm. go to college and get that done. It's not the reality. You know, we're all now realizing we were sold a bill of goods or, you know, more accurately, the world changed, the economy changed. And Mm -hmm. what was true for our parents and their parents and their parents before them is no longer true Mm -hmm. in uh, the modern economy. And so, yes, our confidence is dropping in these institutions because the institutions aren't changing Mm -hmm. with the world. They are really insulated in a lot of ways from the impacts of the global economy and the realities of the job market because they have endowments. Mm. They have donors. They can suck
0: money deliberately, literally right from the ground.
1: They can suck money literally right from the ground. They're able to pull down federal grants. Mm. You know, their existence is not dependent upon economic forces. Mm. If it were, I don't think you would see this DEI all of these ideologies. I mean, you probably still have it just because the type of person who becomes a PhD
0: um, hey, Resemble that is remark.
1: a little bit squishy. Shall we say <laughs> I'm right here dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, But I don't think you would see it to that same extent because the institutions themselves would have to respond to market forces mm. and those demands of actually getting our students into well-paying jobs and giving them a return on their investment
0: and that's what you see you know with the the papers and specifically the research uh, trajectory of 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 dr gillen Mm -hmm. uh, on our staff is essentially not saying oh college is for nobody and everybody you know everybody should learn how to weld or code or whatever the case might be but saying like look there is a you know there is a lot of inter-major variability with how much the earning potential for that major is. And therefore, should we start looking at finding what gives that pathway? And, you know, look, if that, you know, if doctors and lawyers, if they're going to be making X amount of dollars, you know, taking out a more substantial debt might make perfect sense. But look, if you, you know, have uh, advanced underwater basket weaving as your particular major and you rack up $150,000 in debt on that, are you going to weave enough underwater baskets to actually make good on that? And the data suggests that that absolutely is not the case. So I really appreciate you uh, bringing up that that asymmetry right there. Uh, this is the time where Brian would start uh, getting the little hook and trying to drag me because the guy is. Uh, but he's know. not here, so we're going to go. It's yeah, welcome it's, it's... to the
1: special three-hour edition, <laughs>
0: yeah. the Joe, the uh, Derek uh, Rogan experience. Uh, there we go. Um, only a couple more things I wanted to, wanted to talk about specifically in the uh, the state here. Uh, one of which being that we had a, a lot of people don't know this, but we had a pretty close call last night on the grid. We did. Um, yeah. Re- reported. Oh, well, that only reported. It was talked about by many people, but it was only reported. You, you know when I talk about straight down the middle reporting by, uh, you know, friend of the pod, Brad Johnson. Shout out, Brad. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, like close to eight last night, uh, Ercot issued a, a EEA2, an emergent, an electric em- energy emergency alert level two where it's you know level one is like hey guys knock it off with all the demand level two is like hey we really mean it mm-hmm. and level three of course being the where we actually start having the we're
1: going to start shutting your lights off yeah
0: exactly exactly so this happened like i said around seven thirty, mm-hmm. and what we saw was a precipitous drop in the grid frequency so in other words the amount of you know available power on the grid took those surplus levels down to really close to the demand levels and when that happens obviously why did it happen if you look at the time of day you know sun's got to set eventually mm-hmm. so obviously solar doesn't do terribly well at night um wind of course though at that same time dropped off now we're still talking like we had almost uh 70 you know during this tough period 70% being carried by uh natural gas mm-hmm. about 15% by coal and lignite mm-hmm. um and so basically it put the onus. Now, obviously, natural gas is, uh, is you know, a, a cleaner technology than in, in years past. But, you know, everyone that hates their coal and all that, you know, the onus was basically on coal to bail out right. the megawatts left on the table from wind and solar. So one of the things that I think is. What's coming to a head in the policy discussion, and feel free to push back, disagree, even though I, I don't think you will because you've seen the same discussions I've seen, is there's a growing antipathy, not towards renewables per se, right. but to have them be, actually carry uh, a big chunk of that base load when they are inherently non dispatchable. Right. Is that kind of what you're seeing up at the legislature, and where do you kind of see this? I would say policy realm drifting to.
1: Yeah, I definitely see it up at the legislature. More importantly, I'm actually seeing it now from the general population. And Mm. strangely enough, I was driving into work this morning listening to the radio, and I guess the station that I was using pulls their news from CBS. Mm. And they were making that point. Like, what we would consider the, you know, left of center, you know, liberal media is saying, well, part of the problem is we didn't have solar and we didn't have wind producing like it needed to be producing. Yeah. And that's what caused this. That's a dramatic shift because, you know, around the time of Winter Storm uri and mm-hmm. when the grid became a huge topic of conversation, all of the left's talking points were we need more wind, we need more solar. It's not the wind and solar. It's That's not yeah. the problem. That's not the problem. That's not the problem. This has gone on long enough to where they can't even say that with a straight face anymore. They have to say... Yeah, the wind and solar is kind of a problem,
0: and and I think you know uh, I'm surprised uh, Jason Isaac hasn't burst through this door and said they're called unreliables. And so, <laughs> but uh, but he makes a very very good point on that because if you look at the Texas energy market, so we're completely mm. a completely deregulated market, several tiers when it comes to production distribution, so on and so forth. The problem, of course, being is that we actually have a good market right we don't have what they have in many of the other areas which is a capacity market right and so that being said the actual spot price on a kilowatt of energy has a lot of say in what happens in that market yeah so and here's where i think the inherent advantage of wind and solar and this is not an endorsement for that because obviously that we i think we've established that we're skeptical of the intermittency of it but you know they say look it's free you know the wind blows for free the sun shines for free why shouldn't we be capitalizing it and that's fine the problem is is that it's not dispatchable And they go oh we'll just build more batteries you know currently right now the state has like a complete storage capacity like under five kilowatts or i'm sorry megawatts right and don't get me wrong we're talking in the uh you know eighty thousand range when we're talking about like where the ERCOT, uh you know the general baseline but the thing is it's like even if these batteries were topped off like you know, look at like what a power wall setup looks like in uh, in someone's house if they have solar and are using that to offset, say, you know, their pull from whatever the common utility right. is. You know, we're talking their entire garage wall right. basically being used as a very expensive battery now until every single house does that, it's not going to be a remarkable uh, decrease in that particular demand side, right? Right. And so my question then to you is, obviously, we can build more, you can build more coal uh, and lignite plants, even though I think that that's kind of uh, a bit uh, going out of style in this. Obviously, we have no problem with uh, natural gas here in Texas. Not at all. But that being said is, what we need is some new power options to complement some new dispatchable power options allow me to uh, qualify to complement our already existing thermal fleet. Let me ask you, what do you think about nuclear? Big fan. I am a
1: big fan of nuclear. I think we are way behind the times Mm. right now. And I think for understandable reasons, you know, you had noted, you know, tragedies, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, Mm. Fukushima, right, that have spooked the public. Though I will
0: say, Three Mile Island was what was supposed to happen. That's true. Yeah, they actually got that offline. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah,
1: so... (laughs) That is true. But you have those three things loom large in the public's mind, Mm. right? Even if you weren't around for those incidents, Mm. you know about those three uh, nuclear incidents. There's only three that we can really point to Mm. um, in the history of doing nuclear power. Um, And I think it's time and i'm sensing a shift in the public's perception um of nuclear power right mm-hmm. now of being more open to it and understandable that you know the technology is to the point where this is safe this is reliable and you know this can be something that dramatically reduces the cost of energy to the consumer if you can get it built to scale and online mm-hmm. you know it's a lot of upfront investment But that's an investment that I think is worth it. And it's more worth it to me than wind, solar, and all of these other, um, you know, pie in the sky type of renewable sources of energy. Because you know, nuclear is always going to be working. Mm. Um, It's not going to just stop when the sun goes down.
0: Or at least like, you know, natural gas, coal, you know, the the normal thermal dispatchables. You know, when there's going to be a planned outage, ERCOT already knows about it. They're going to price you know, or uh, put it into the model. Right. They're going to see that pricing reflected in the other producers who might need to ramp up or choose to ramp up capacity. And so, again, it's, it's the stability it is. that I think a lot of folks uh, disagree. And so, yes, we are uh, approaching time, so I just want to hit this last topic with you. Um, yesterday, there was a ruling that came down from, a interestingly enough, a Reagan-appointed judge. Yeah, that was wild. Well, I mean, I always like to point out that, you know, Regus did give us Scalia and Rehnquist, but he also gave us uh, Kennedy and, well, now this guy. So so, um, uh, but no, this guy was a uh, a federal judge in um, Hawaii, I believe Uh, now is just kind of helping out with the the federal caseload in uh, West Texas Uh, and essentially uh, enjoined Abbott saying that, you know, hey, you got to get the. You know, granted, you know we haven't had a boat come through, in God knows how long, but it's a navigable waterway. So uh, get those, uh, get your uh, wipeout obstacles out of the uh, out of the Rio Grande, and I think he gave them till uh, about a week from 15th, now. Fifteenth, I think. Yeah, a week from now to comply. So we've obviously talked, you know, till we're blue in the face on this particular thing, and as far as needing uh, approval from the Army Corps of Engineers, you know, legally having read into that particular case and that ruling i'm not sure that rulings in air now look we can talk about the wisdom of you know whether we're talking WOTUS or any of these other federal regulatory uh, apparatus but i think that's a relatively straightforward reading of the law in this difficult circumstance so you know as you know the barrier the buoy barrier easy to say um was essentially deployed and of course you know the left uh, media but I repeat myself <laughs> went ahead and ran with it That is, you know it's it's basically got spikes on it it's got the it's got a uh, buzzsaw blades even though yeah, it's it, like
1: they're apparently Greg Abbott is jigsaw yeah, yeah
0: this is was, this elaborate saw murder machine i i was i was about to say that it was yeah i say that needlessly complex uh <laughs> but but if you look at the you know they actually ha- like had like videos of the guy just like leaning up against the saw with his hand and it coming back with not even marks on it. right and again is to dissuade folks from trying to climb over one of the issues so we we talked ad nauseum on this show mm-hmm. about the abdication of the federal government which I, I think is you know old hat by now right The question this raises is is the buoys themselves... Were actually deployed, and this is what the Abbott team says, and I'm 100% inclined to believe, because it makes perfect sense. And again, it's not stopping them from it's not stopping uh, illegal immigrants from coming over. It's channeling them to the ports of entry, correct? Where you know they can safely cross a bridge. You know, Abbott uh, caught some flack and some praise from folks on the right saying you can't drown on a bridge. And so this was to dissuade the illegal between port. Crossings. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the federal government by pulling this out is essentially saying, you know what? Fine. Wade in there, kids get washed down, uh washed down the river, which has happened numerous times. Mm-hmm. We've seen children abandoned, seen a whole not you know, parade of evils there. Essentially, now we're basically reopening this this method of coming into the country that does have a mortality percentage. Yes. My question is A one humanitarian uh humanitarianly speaking if that's a word how how does the federal government even square that and two what's the alternative solution and three look if these folks are going to come here and claim asylum the easiest way to do so is through the ports of entry so why are we avoiding that
1: right and i think one thing to keep in mind is this ruling will be appealed oh it already is it already is this is not the end of this uh case and i you know I kind of liked the state of Texas's chances going up. It'll be some novel questions about the federal government abdicating its responsibilities um, to secure the international borders. Um and what roles do those states have and what recourse do those states have that have an international border to secure their own territory and their own sovereignty? Um you know, I think the humanitarian issue of this is the part that really gets my blood boiling. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, I'm a child welfare guy. Mm -hmm. You know, I understand folks coming from many of these countries in Central and South America who just want a better life Mm -hmm. for their kids. And they're desperate to get here. Um, And those folks are being placed in harm's way. Those kids are being placed in harm's way. They're
0: being forced into an economic arrangement with a criminal syndicate. Absolutely.
1: And that criminal syndicate, they don't care what happens once they get to the river. Mm-hmm. All they have to do is deliver them to the crossing point. Once they're across, okay, fine. They they got paid, right? They made their money and the cargo has been dropped off on the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's the real tragedy of this is we are giving those cartels more ways of making money. Mm. We're giving them more options to smuggle human beings mm. across a border and to put human beings at risk for their very lives for a profit. It's disgusting. And it's something that if you. Are somebody who thinks the buoy barrier was somehow this dastardly, evil, you know, brutal thing. But you're not willing to speak up about the cartels smuggling these kids and families across the border and using them as nothing more than livestock yeah. to fund their yeah. syndicates. You're a hypocrite. Right. I'm sorry. You're a hypocrite. Um And we need to have different ways of ensuring, one, that those who want to come to America can do so Mm -hmm. and can do so in the legal ways and can claim asylum if they are in fear for their lives back in their home countries. By that same token, we also need to make it exceedingly difficult for criminal cartels to exploit those people. Mm -hmm. And we need to hold those criminal cartels accountable in any mean by any means necessary.
0: Right. And yeah, I think that you hit the nail right on the head because so much of the debate is not even about these, again, transnational criminal syndicates. Let's call it what it is. But so much of these so much of the debate around this is these people, much like you said, these people are looking for a better life. I will stipulate to that I, I completely I completely agree with that and I would like to see them, especially the ones with justiciable uh, asylum claims, you know be afforded that. Mm-hmm. The problem of course being is that our immigration system has been completely broken for some time and that's and again going back many administrations. Yep. Um, it's such a politically toxic air you know area because you know nobody wants to sit at the table because there's no trust in the you know the other bargaining entity and so that's why we get into this place of near federal paralysis and i think paralysis paralysis implies that there isn't intent there and i'm not willing to say that mm-hmm. but at the very least we know nothing is happening right. because there's absolutely no willingness to uh, do things other at the, at the federal level. I mean, I, I, I've on this show have praised Abbott uh, for his willingness and not to be a novel solutions on this particular yeah. uh, front. But again, it doesn't staunch the flow. It doesn't necessarily. And not only that, but we're just talking about stopping the bleeding. What do we do about the you know millions upon millions of folks that are already here? That is something we're going to have to get into. At another time, but uh, Andrew really liked having you on. Hopefully, we can have you back with uh, Brian. I unfortunately was not able to find a um, zip-up vest that uh, that uh, I could have used in time. <laughs> but I would like to do. I would like to say uh, you're welcome back anytime. I appreciate now, I do have to actually mention because Brian would have my head if he didn't. Uh, that you know his newsletter product, The Post. Uh, you can go to texaspolicy.com and you can subscribe to that or any of other other communications product. And that brings us to the end here for uh, the right idea. So as Sam Houston says, do good and risk the consequences.